0: Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be continuing our study of Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 17 of that great chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds that we study the Word of God together. We are continuing our study of Romans chapter 8. We're getting to the heart of the chapter today, and we'll be looking at some really fantastic and amazingly written passages over the next few weeks. So I encourage you to join us as we study this great chapter of the Bible. We're on verse 10, so you can turn there in your Bibles. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 17 today. In the previous study, we looked at a passage that spoke about living by the flesh versus living by the spirit and and what all that means. Living by the flesh means basically living like an animal. Living to fulfill your animalistic desires, the basic desires that all animals have. And though we humans have these same desires, we weren't created by God to live by them. We were created in the image of God, and so our lives should reflect that. And that's what living by the Spirit means. Living a life as those who are created in the image of God, as those who seek to worship God through our actions, to live a life seeking to please God and to serve Him. It's important that those who are Christ's live as those who are Christ's. And to do this, we need to live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. We as Christians have been given this great gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, as Paul said in verses 9 and 11. And so, we need to take advantage of this great gift and lean on the Spirit, and heed the call of the Spirit, and live by the Spirit. So that's what we looked at last week, and last week's passage focused on our standing with respect to the flesh or the Spirit. Are we walking by the flesh or the Spirit? Are our minds set on walking by the flesh or by the Spirit? What happens if we're living in the flesh rather than living in the Spirit? Those are the kind of things we looked at in our last study. And we examined even our state of existence and whether we were living in the Spirit or the flesh. In this week's passage, Paul speaks directly to us who are living by the Spirit and focuses on the work that the Spirit is doing in our lives. So let's read today's passage. We'll be reading from verse 9 through 17 of chapter 8 to get the full context, even though today we'll probably start by looking at verse 10. So let's read it. Romans 8, verses 9 through 17, quote, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a Spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, So as I said in the passage we looked at in our last study, uh, that passage dealt with our state of existence with respect to the Holy Spirit, posing the questions like, Are we living according to the Spirit? We found that in verse 4. Are our minds set on the Spirit? That was in verse 5. Are our minds governed by the Spirit? We find that in verse 6. Are we in the realm of the Spirit? We found that in verse 9. All these things deal with our state of existence with respect to the Holy Spirit. In this week's passage, Paul speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And this can be seen in some of the phrases that Paul uses in this passage. The Holy Spirit is active, alive, and doing things. Verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Verse uh, verse 13, we find this. If by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. And then in verse 14. Those who are led by the spirit of God. We have the spirit leading us there. Verse 15. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave, but you received the spirit of adoption. The implication there is that the spirit brings about our adoption as the sons of God. Uh, Verse 15, and by the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies that we are God's children. So in this passage, there's a lot of action going on being performed by the Holy Spirit within us. And that's exciting. And, and we shouldn't be surprised about that. The Holy Spirit, well, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at the creation of the earth, separating the water, shaping the planets, spraying the heavens with light. This same Holy Spirit led the children of Israel out of Egypt as they made their way through the raging seas. And, and the Holy Spirit showered them with manna from heaven. This same Holy Spirit placed the incarnate Son of God in the womb of Mary, led and sustained him through his earthly trials, empowered him with miracles, and raised him from the dead. And this is the gift that we all have, this power dwelling within us, with the ability to transform our lives, if we'd only let him. We have that same Holy Spirit. And he doesn't just sit around. He's at work within us, actually doing things, bringing things about. And as I said, that's exciting. In verses 10 and 11, Paul speaks of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Let's read those verses again. Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. Quote: But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. In many passages in the New Testament which speak of life and death, especially uh, uh, in Paul's epistles, we need to ask ourselves what death and what life is he talking about? And this seems like an odd question to the man on the street. But Paul teaches that there's a different life and death than just the life and death of the body. There's a life and death of the spirit as well. And that death of the spirit occurs when we first sin. And and that spirit stays dead unless and until we come to Christ. Paul speaks clearly of this in Ephesians, a passage that we go to a lot because of how Clearly, it speaks of this matter. Let's read Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, this speaks of our spiritual death as we lived in sin before Christ. And then Paul continues in that passage in Ephesians uh, with verses 4 and 5, let's read them, quote, "...but because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved." Unquote. So there's an aspect of life and death, even as we live here on earth, a spiritual death due to our sin. But just as through Christ our mortal bodies will be raised from the dead, so also through Christ our spirits are raised from the dead, even as we live here on earth. Back in Romans, in verses 10 and 11, Paul is speaking of both aspects of life and death. In verse 10, he speaks of the death and life of our spirits. And then in verse 11, he speaks of the death and life of our bodies. Let's read them again with this in mind. First verse 10, quote, But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness, unquote. Through Christ, our spirits are alive because of the righteousness that uh, Christ imparts to us. This is the new life that we have in Christ, even as we live here on earth. Then in verse 11, Paul, speaking of the death and life of our bodies, he, he says this, quote, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Just as Christ's body was raised from the dead, so also our bodies will be raised from the dead through the same mechanism and power. As a result, as Christians, we should view the death of our bodies different than how those of the world view death. All natural creatures are given the sense of self-preservation. And for that reason, we all fear death to some extent. Christians, by faith, look past the death of our bodies to the eternal life of our souls. And so given that, our fear of death, our fear of bodily death, it should be mitigated. Those of the world, in addition to fearing death because of the sense of self-preservation, They also need to fear God and judgment before God. We who are in Christ should have no such fear, knowing that Christ, in his love for us, has atoned for our sins, paid the punishment that we deserve. For these reasons, the Christian should not fear death because of destruction, like the natural man does, nor should we fear death because of judgment, like the worldly man does. For us, by faith, Death is the exit from a fallen world and an entrance into glory. And and truly, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, the day of our death is better than the day of our birth. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that makes it so. The power of the Spirit who gives life to our mortal bodies just as he gave life to Christ's mortal body. And, of course, the gift of life that we have through the Holy Spirit is something that we should have the utmost gratitude for. And this gratitude for the new life that we have in Christ should overflow into how we live our lives here on earth. And that's what Paul speaks of next in verses 12 and 13. Here's what he says, "...therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die." But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live." Unquote. Because of this great gift of life that we have, as described in verses 10 and 11, we have an obligation uh, to live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to help us in this, which is what Paul says in verse 13. Uh, let's read it again, quote, "...for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if..." By the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live." Now, this phrase, put to death the misdeeds of the body, is artistically written and worthy of meditation. It's It's a bit of a vague phrase that could have all sorts of meanings and applications, I think. At its most basic and most important, I think, it means that through the work of Christ, our sins, which Paul calls the misdeeds of the body, our sins are put to death through Christ's atonement, and so by the Spirit we can live. And this is an interpretation of the phrase which applies to our justification. We've talked about before in earlier weeks about how many of these passages in the heart of the book of Romans can apply either to our justification, that is, uh, to our forgiveness of sin that we have through Christ, through which we are given this great gift of eternal life. So they can apply either to our justification or our sanctification, which is the process as we live here on earth of becoming more Christ-like, improving how we live here on earth. And while many scholars may argue over many of these passages about whether they apply to our justification or to our sanctification, I have this silly idea that Paul, and really the Holy Spirit working through Paul, uh, they were smart enough to write these passages in such a way that they can apply both to our justification and to our sanctification. At one level, we can look at this passage as saying that we live by putting to death the misdeeds of the body through our faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. That's looking at this passage through the lens of justification. Or we can also look at it through the lens of sanctification and consider the ways in which by the Holy Spirit, we can be more Christ-like and put to death the misdeeds of the body, which unfortunately continue even after we come to Christ. Unfortunately, though we have a new life in Christ, We have these pesky things called our bodies, which cause us to continue to fall into sin. And many of these sins are sins that we have lived with most of our lives. They're sins that we personally are particularly subject to. They are moral weaknesses that we have lived with a long time. Given that, as part of the process of sanctification, we need to utilize the power of the Holy Spirit to put them to death. Put these sins to death. That's what sanctification is all about. And we're not alone in this, as Paul says. And in fact, we can't do it alone. We're too weak in our natural selves. It's by the Spirit that we put to death the misdeeds of the body. We need to lean on the Holy Spirit and seek His power through prayer. And this is a lifetime of work. The scholars point out that the words translated here as put to death would probably be better translated keep on putting to death. The tense of the verb in the original Greek addresses a continuing action. So it will never be the case where we wake up one morning feeling especially moral and righteous that day. It will never be the case where we wake up and through one stroke of some magical sword or something, we put to death the misdeeds of the body once and for all. No, that will never be the case. The language used here suggests that this activity of putting our sins to death is a continuing one and one that we'll never be finished with as long as we live In these bodies of sin now you may ask well how do I you know how exactly do I do this how exactly do I put to death the misdeeds of the body what you know what steps do I take and the answer to that is more difficult a lot of it depends you know specifically on what sins you're trying to put to death so it's hard to come up with you know kind of cookbook recipe for doing this But there are some general principles, I think, which apply to all situations. First and foremost, as we talked about before, we need to make use of the power of the Holy Spirit. Use the Holy Spirit as an ally. Pray that by the strength of the Holy Spirit, you would overcome this or that sin. This is a lifetime constant partnership that we have with the Holy Spirit in this process of sanctification. So. We need to make use of it, take full advantage of it. Second, I think we all need to understand clearly God's extreme hatred for sin. This understanding can come through the study of the Bible. God's hatred for sin is well documented in the Bible. This understanding can also come through meditation on Christ's sacrifice. The hatred that God has of sin was reflected in the brutality of Christ's suffering and death. If we look at, in our mind's eye, the passion of Christ, his suffering and death, then we see what our sin deserves. Wow, that suffering is what my sin deserves. Through this sort of meditation, we can better understand the hatred that God has for sin. And then after that, third, given that we know of God's hatred for sin, we ourselves need to develop an extreme hatred for sin. We need to stop making excuses for our sins. We need to stop downplaying the seriousness of our sins. And we need to develop a strong hatred for our own sins, just as God has. It's funny and a bit regrettable. It's so easy for us to develop a hatred for the sins of others and yet downplay the seriousness of our own sins. A good first step in this would be to at least hate our own sins as much as we hate the sins of others. Origen, one of the early church fathers who, who lived just about oh, 150 years after Paul lived. Origen suggested a technique for putting to death our sins, in line with something Paul wrote later in the book of Romans. Uh, in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 21, Paul says, quote, Don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good." Origen's strategy for this was to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, and, and this would naturally put all sorts of sin to death. The fruit of the Spirit, as, as many of you know, is given to us in, in Galatians 5, and 23. Uh, Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Given that, here's what Origen said, uh, and it's a quote that uh, comes from way back in 200 AD. Here's what he says, quote, Putting to death the deeds of the body works like this. Love is a fruit of the spirit, but hate is an act of the flesh. Therefore, hate is put to death and extinguished by love. Likewise, joy is a fruit of the spirit, but severe sadness is of this world. And because it brings death it is a work of the flesh. Therefore, it is extinguished if the joy of the spirit dwells in us. Peace is a fruit of the spirit, but dissension and discord is an act of the flesh. However, it's certain that discord can be eliminated by peace. Likewise, the patience of the spirit overcomes the impatience of the flesh. Goodness wipes out evil, meekness does away with ferocity, faithfulness with intemperance, self-control with license, and so on." Ah, Some good stuff there. Some solid biblical teaching from many, many years ago. The bottom line is allow good to overcome evil. Allow the fruit of the Spirit to crowd out all spaces for sin. Back here in Romans, again, the emphasis in this passage is the work of the Spirit. And Paul emphasizes that in the next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Let's read that. Quote, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Unquote. With this verse, Paul transitions to a new topic. And with this new topic, tells us some remarkable and valuable things for us as Christians. In fact, we should view these verses as being extremely precious to us. What he tells us here is that life in the Spirit brings us, as Christians, into a new family relationship with God. And from this, we gain all of the benefits of being part of God's family. Let's read the passage. But before I do that, let me, in full disclosure, tell you that I have reverted to the translation of some of the verses to an earlier NIV translation, the one from 1984, because I think it's more accurate. For instance, in verse 14, the latest NIV translation states that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. I reverted that to how the 1984 translation read, which is to say those led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I did this in order to be more faithful to the original and and to the context of the passage. The phrase here, as sons of God, is important to the passage because in that culture, it was the sons who were heirs. They received the inheritance. That's the way that the culture worked back then because it was an agrarian society, a society based on owning land and farms and ranches, etc. The women would become part of their husband's family. They weren't heirs in their own family, but they became heirs through marriage of whatever their husband inherited. So Paul's saying here that not that we're just any old children of God, but we're sons of God. And because of that, we are in line to be heirs of God. As many of you know, the later translations of the NIV worked hard to get rid of gender-specific references. And in general, I don't have a problem with that, as long as the translation is faithful to what the original language said. But in this case, the original Greek does say specifically sons of God, not children of God. And Paul says that in order to emphasize that we are heirs of God. We will gain an inheritance through being a son of God. Now, let me be clear here, this isn't to leave out any of you women listening to this from this. Um, This verse applies to all of the women listening here. They too are sons of God. This verse applies to all of us, men and women. You can liken it to the phrase, the Bride of Christ. The church is called the Bride of Christ. And even as a man, if I'm part of the church, then I'm part of the Bride of Christ. I remember thinking, when I was a new Christian, when I first heard that term, I remember thinking, wait, I'm a man. I don't want to be the bride of Christ. (laughs) But as I I grew in my learning about the things of God, I grew to understand what the term means and all that. And and so I have no problem with being labeled as part of the bride of Christ. It's the same thing here in verse 14. All of us, both men and women, Christians, if we're led by the Spirit of God, we're sons of God. And we want to be, because, as I said, in that culture, the sons got the inheritance. And that's what Paul's pointing out here in this amazingly and beautifully written paragraph. So let's read it. Uh, We'll be reading Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. Quote, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's a progression here that's worthy of note. First, we are said to be sons of God, and that's well and good on its face. But even among us, we have the case where someone will say, oh, you're like a son to me. And what does that mean? It means that there's a bond of affection between two people, but it may or may not mean anything more than that. But God goes beyond that, and so we're told that, beyond being like a son, we're actually adopted as sons. When Paul says that you receive the spirit of adoption, the Greek word translated adoption is the actual legal term in Greek for the legal adoption of a child. So that clearly goes beyond saying something like, hey, you're like a son to me. To be adopted is to legally and permanently and officially be a son of God. There's no turning back. And then Paul goes beyond that to say that we are heirs. So it's not just an adoption on paper. We are heirs of God. And then even beyond that, we are co-heirs or joint heirs with Christ, which means that the level of what we inherit will be on par with what God's only true son inherits. And we don't fully know exactly what that means, but we're given a hint here. Uh, it means that we will in some way, as it says, share in Christ's glory. Now I confess here that I can't fully wrap my head around what that means exactly, sharing in Christ's glory, uh, but, I, but I can say it's something great, something fantastically great, something great beyond our comprehension. So, anyway, that's the progression here, and I love the emotion that Paul shows here in the middle of the section. Let's read verse uh, 15 again, Romans 8, um, verse 15, quote, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, unquote. That's an extremely beautiful passage. Paul, especially in the book of Romans, often writes, you know, technically difficult theological stuff, heavy-duty, you know, intellectual and complex doctrinal statements. But sometimes Paul's strong emotional feelings come through, and this is one of them, this cry, Abba, Father. Uh, The way Paul writes this just brings home how truly God desires to be a true loving father to us. This is not just some theoretical sonship or theoretical adoption. It's one by which we can reach out to God and cry out to him for his help and, and, and even cry out to him, Abba, Father. It's such a beautiful idea well expressed by Paul. Now, in the original manuscript, Paul writes two words there, which both mean father. The first word is the Aramaic for father, which is transliterated here as Abba. And then there's the Greek word for father, which is translated for us as the word father. Aramaic was the natural home language of most people who lived in the Middle East at that time. And so Aramaic was spoken in the areas of, you know, modern day Syria, Iran, Iraq, and much of Turkey, and even in Israel. You might think that the people in Israel spoke Hebrew, and they did before the exile to Babylon in in 600 BC. The Babylonian Empire overran Israel and exiled the Jews to Babylon. This is all spoken of in the book of Jeremiah and other places in the Old Testament. And the Jews were in exile for over 50 years. And then they were allowed to return to the land, the land of Israel. But by then, Aramaic was being spoken everywhere in the Babylonian Empire. And that continued even after the fall of uh, the Babylonian Empire. A- and this continued through the Greek Empire, even, which was you know, strongest in about 325 B.C. And even into the Roman Empire, which was strongest during the time of Christ for, and for about 300 years after that. Uh, so anyway, Jesus spoke Aramaic in his day-to-day life. And so did Peter and Paul and, and, you know, all of the various Marys and everything who lived at the time. They all spoke Aramaic. That was the natural, you know, street language uh, uh, spoken in in Israel at the time when Jesus walked the earth. Um, And and it's the overwhelming consensus of scholars that, you know, say, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount was spoken in Aramaic. The preaching and teaching by Christ was probably... uh, all done in Aramaic. So you may ask, well, where does Greek come in? Um, you know, because the, the whole New Testament is written in Greek. Well, so Aramaic was the home language in most of the Middle East. Greek at that time was the language of commerce. It was, you know, the universal language of the Western world at that time. It's It was kind of like English is now. If you go just about anywhere in the world today, you can get by by speaking English. Greek was the same way at that time, and that's why the New Testament is written not in Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke, but in Greek. So Paul here does something interesting when he cries out, Abba, Father. It's like he's going back to his childhood. It's the innocent, dependent childhood call to his loving Father. Abba. You know, that's what he said as he was a child. He spoke Aramaic. He cried out to his father, Abba. So it's it's a beautiful and tender moment right here in the midst of this highly technical and doctrinal book of Romans. And then in order to universalize this relationship, he repeats the word father in Greek saying father. And so, with the two words here, the Abba Father, Paul's telling us that this adoption that we are part of, it's not just some legal formality where the lawyers get together and they sign some papers, and some judge in a robe says, you know, By the power invested in me, you are his son. You know, it's not just some legal formality. We're truly children of God, even to the point where we can cry out to him like a helpless and needy child, Abba. Father. It's quite beautiful and quite beautifully written. This is really a precious sentence here that we have in the Bible where where Paul says, and by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. It really sums up the fact that through Christ and by his Spirit we have peace with God and we can have a personal relationship with God, even to the point where we can cry out to him like a child crying out, abba father beautiful beautiful stuff and so in verse 15 we're at the highest high we're feeling great as christians we're sons we're adopted we're heirs we're joint heirs with christ and we can cry out to the lord of the universe abba father and speak to him appeal to him personally we're walking on air at our highest high and then Paul has to go and say this. Let's read verse 17. Quote, "Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory." Unquote. No, Paul, why do you have to say that? We don't want to share in his sufferings. We appreciate his sufferings on our behalf. We praise God that Christ suffered and died for us, but I don't don't think most of us have this, you know, overwhelming desire to share in his sufferings. And we've talked about this before, and we won't go into too much detail today. Only suffice it to say, for now, we live in a fallen world, and we will suffer here on earth. And we need to bear those sufferings in a Christ-like manner, glorifying God even through our sufferings. Even using our sufferings as a way to glorify God and as a witness to the world that God is with us even through our sufferings. Our Heavenly Father is is with us even through our times of suffering. Paul uses this phrase as a transition into a section where actually Paul talks about the suffering of the entire creation. The next passage is quite an amazing passage. As I read it, it it really gives us the basis for one of the most fundamental scientific laws of the universe, what we call the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics was first formulated and understood by scientists in the 1800s. And yet Paul here, in this next passage, states it, gives us the reason for it, and even lets us know that the second law will eventually be overturned by the power of Christ. As I said, it's an amazing passage, and we'll be talking about science quite a bit in our next study, so if you're interested in that, uh, tune on in. In fact, in order to understand the workings of the universe, you really need to understand the second law of thermodynamics. And in fact, the second law ties into much of the teaching of the Bible and relates to a lot of things which are taught in the Bible. So we'll be having quite a unique study next time, which delves into these issues, so so I encourage you to be here, and even bring your friends who may be interested in these topics, how the Bible ties in with and is consistent with the laws of science. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors, amen.